0: North Korea says it successfully launched a hypersonic missile this week for the first time. These weapons fly up to five times faster than the speed of sound and at lower altitudes than traditional ballistic missiles. This means warheads could become much harder for us to intercept. Two weeks ago, North Korea also launched missiles from railroad cars, a potentially huge deal because mobile weapons are more difficult to find and target. The South Koreans responded just a few hours later with their first ever underwater launch of a ballistic missile from a submarine, a move designed to remind Pyongyang that a first strike against Seoul would be met with guaranteed retaliation. Kim Jong-un hasn't received as much attention in the West since his photo ops with Donald Trump, but he's continued to aggressively develop materials and systems that make his regime a growing danger to American interests. Our guest this week has some ideas for how the United States should try to avert what he sees as a looming crisis.
1: I do think that the drumbeat is getting louder. And then on the current path, uh, we're likely to see more
0: things from North Korea in the fall. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is Please, Go On. Victor Cha is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a professor at Georgetown University. He became famous in foreign policy circles for his hawkish approach toward North Korea as an official in George W. Bush's administration. That's why Trump picked Cha to be U.S. ambassador to South Korea. But in January 2018, the then-president ditched the nomination around the time Cha wrote an op-ed in the Post warning against a preemptive bloody nose strike on the North, which some in the Trump administration were advocating for at that time. After the latest round of tests, Cha returned to the pages of the Post to call for increasing engagement with Kim. Here's our conversation. North
1: Korea has been fairly quiet from the start of the Biden administration, which is unusual for them. They usually challenge U.S. presidents early on, particularly when they're in their first term. They challenge them almost immediately after they're inaugurated. I think what we're seeing now from North Korea on the military side are uh, demonstrated advancements in their program. So one of these was a low-altitude cruise missile, which they referred to as a strategic asset, which suggests that they want to develop uh, nuclear capability for that cruise missile, something that only a few countries, including the United States, can do. Uh, Then they tested uh, a short-range ballistic missile from a rail-mobile launch platform. So that means basically launching it from a railway car. Uh, And mobile launch capabilities are much harder for the United States to preempt. Uh, And on the other side of the coin, what that means is North Korea is trying to develop a survivable uh, capability. And now this talk about a hypersonic missile, uh, again, suggests that they're making advancements in their program that make it harder for U.S. missile defenses to counter.
0: How, if at all, is the Biden administration's approach to... North Korea different than the Trump administration?
1: So I think that the Biden administration is not unfamiliar with this problem. Many of the people who had worked uh, on these issues in the Obama administration are working with them at a higher level, working at them in the in the Biden administration. And there was one major negotiation that these folks were engaged in in 2012, something known as the leap day deal because it was an agreement that was reached on the last day of February 2012 that very famously didn't go anywhere. So they've all been burned by North Korea in negotiations in the past. And I think they're quite skeptical of uh, the success of negotiations. Now, you know, I hesitate to use the term strategic patience because they say it's not strategic patience sitting back, and the policy has been quite low profile. You don't see them giving a lot of speeches about their policy towards North Korea. Their senior envoy is pretty low-key on the issue. I mean, compared to the amount of activity they're putting into the Iran negotiations, for example, it's not as active now right right on the North Korea front.
0: Barack Obama famously told Donald Trump before he took office that North Korea would be the biggest challenge he'd face as president. Obviously, it didn't blow up. Uh, thank goodness, what lessons do you think we can learn from that?
1: After the leap day deal failed in 2012, the Obama administration really went to a policy of heavy on sanctions and increasing sanctions on North Korea. Um, Not really interested in dialogue unless the North Koreans came knocking on the door. You know, this, I think, set up a situation where the North Koreans were stewing for quite some time, and that's why Obama told Trump this is going to be a big problem. And he was right within the first year of Trump's presidency, there were 20 ballistic missile tests and a hydrogen bomb test. So Obama was not wrong in saying that, you know, Trump nearly before he engaged in his bromance diplomacy with Kim Jong-un, we, you know, he nearly did take the peninsula to war at the end of 2017. And and some of the listeners know I spoke out against that. Um, I thought we came dangerously close. I don't think the Biden administration is going to, you know, engage in summit diplomacy Or are they going to threaten military strikes on the peninsula? But I do worry that if North Korea carries out a major provocation, like an ICBM launch or another SLBM launch, I don't think the Biden administration, given their past experience on this, is going to go back to say, all right, let's just do diplomacy to sort of ratchet down the crisis and hope for a a subpar agreement that they'll violate in six months just because of what they've been through i i don't think that they'll respond that way and so that's why i think it might result in a crisis if north korea you know continues to move down this road and carries out some big testing the biden administration is not going to respond by saying okay let's just talk to them now which is sort of the pat response in the past you know i think they will come back forcefully now i don't know what forcefully means i don't think that'll be kinetic but they will come back not with with kindness, but with toughness. And, you know, then that could obviously spiral.
0: You write in your op-ed for The Post that the usual answer to this problem is to apply more sanctions in order to compel North Korea to stop the problem with, which I guess is the flip side of diplomacy. And you write that option might make for good politics in Washington, but it's likely to have little effect. If sanctions aren't the answer and just talking and signing some deal that North Korea is going to violate isn't the answer. What do we do? What is the, the right approach?
1: We have to remember that when we start talking about what the right approach is with North Korea, that North Korea policy, you know, is famously known within the U.S. government as the land of lousy options. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're, you're basically choosing between this is a bad choice versus this is a horrible choice versus this is a disastrous choice. It's never good choices, it's all bad choices. Can we rely on the Chinese to help? Not really, because the Chinese have been pretty clear that they're not gonna help on North Korea while the U.S. takes this very competitive strategic competition posture with with China. The South Korean government is leaving office in a few months, so they're not gonna be very helpful. Sanctions aren't really working because they've closed the border uh, because of COVID for over 20 months. So. They're sanctioning themselves harder than we could ever sanction them. And the goal, remember, the goal is always to denuclearize North Korea. That's our policy goal. So, you know, what I argue in the piece is what we're, what we're left with is essentially trying to understand what North Korea values right now. And I think that they, like every other leader, wake up in the morning and the main thing they're concerned about is COVID transmission. This might be a time to sort of pull on the humanitarian assistance thread a little bit. They have a food problem because of the border shutdown. You know, they clearly are f- afraid of COVID. They have no vaccines at all in the country yet. Zero percent of the population has been vaccinated. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't shut the border unless for 20 months unless they really cared about this. And so, you know, so that was essentially the argument they tried to make in the piece that, you know, Humanitarian assistance normally isn't considered sort of a big play on the policy side on North Korea. It's it's it, Some people would consider it to be small ball. But it's all relative to the policy context. And right now, we don't have any other options.
0: Kim rejected an offer of Chinese vaccines from COVAX, the World Health Organization-backed initiative to distribute them, because he doesn't trust them. Do you think he would take Western humanitarian assistance if we offered it?
1: Yes. In principle, they have taken it before. Uh, not vaccines, but they've taken Western humanitarian assistance before. It'll be a struggle because there's always a negotiation over the terms of monitoring and distribution, which North Korea always prefers not to have.
0: Right. We don't want the vaccines just going to their troops. Right. No one right.
1: right. So, you know, there will always be that struggle, that negotiation. But uh, I think if the U.S. government carries out that negotiation on behalf of uh, uh, whatever it is, USAID, WHO Covax in the past the US government has done that on behalf of a consortium of NGOs and gotten very good terms for monitoring and distribution so i think it can it can be done for one there has to be support for this in the international community which i think there is and and two the north Koreans have to say yes and so you know right now the north Koreans have their door shut and they don't want to open it for anybody but I don't really understand what the North Korean exit strategy is for COVID, right? Uh, because they're clearly not trying to acquire vaccines because they've rejected all of them. And maybe they're just waiting for the, uh, an offer of mRNA vaccines. Or is it to just wait out until everybody else has herd immunity, which means their border will be closed for, you know, well over two years, if not longer, and you know that's i don't see how they survived that way i just don't know how they could they could manage
0: do we have any sense of even with the border being closed to what extent there have been covid outbreaks in north korea is if they actually had it under control
1: we really don't have a good sense their official line is that they have no cases uh, but there's anecdotal reports here and there that there have been outbreaks there's been quarantining of populations the latest sort of report I saw from an NGO group was that there have been outbreaks in the military. Um, and again, they don't have testing either, right? They have no testing capacity. So, so they have no testing, they have no vaccines. If there is transmission in the country, it could be pretty rampant.
0: We'll be right back after a short break. Kim has seemed to be more public-facing over the last few months. Is that more theater, or do you think that that is potentially reflective of a change or some family dynamic adjusting...
1: Compared to his father, he's much more present and open, doing what they call in North Korea on-the-spot guidance, laughing and smiling with the citizens, much like his grandfather did, the first leader of North Korea. Not like his father, who was kind of a recluse. But this has happened in cycles because he has disappeared for a while. Some thought it was because of COVID. Others thought he was sick. He has reappeared recently and looks like he's lost quite a bit of weight, maybe uh, 40 or 50 pounds. I mean, he's really lost a lot of weight. And so um, uh, people think there may have been health conditions that he's trying to address through the massive weight loss. The other reason I think he's back is we are approaching the 10-year anniversary of his assumption of power. And so I think uh, that's one of the reasons we're seeing more of him now than we have in the past as they prepare for that.
0: I want to broaden the conversation about North Korea to talk about what President Biden says is part of our larger American pivot toward Asia. We've seen the AUKUS strategic leap the last few weeks. We've also seen the, the quad uh, meetings that have started to take place. North Korea obviously reacting negatively <laughs> to, to the U.S. deal with the Australians. Where do you think that fits in with the U.S.-North Korean relationship?
1: All of these things that the Biden administration has been undertaking with the initiatives that you've mentioned, they're clearly focused on China. right? They're clearly focused on sort of building a coalition of countries, like-minded democracies to support the rules-based international order and to deal with China as a group rather than dealing with China on their own. I'm sure that North Korea is watching all this with a great deal of trepidation because, you know, clearly they're not a part of it, but yet they get the ripple effects of this growing, stronger, united Western presence uh, in Asia, though it's focused on China. China and North Korea have a relationship, but it's not like a very close, lovey-dovey, allied relationship. It's a very tense relationship where... North Korea feels like China treats it like and ignores it like a poor province and China looks at North Korea and says, you know, on the one hand, we can't let it collapse because then we're stuck with the U.S.-South Korean alliance right on our border, so we have to keep it afloat. Yet at the same time, they do things like fire off missiles and rockets and nuclear bombs that create crises with the United States. So you know, North Korea is in this position where it sees this growing coalition diplomacy around them focused on uh, their their primary uh, benefactor, but they don't have a good relationship with that benefactor. And that causes them to feel even more isolated in the region.
0: I'd love to take your temperature on Taiwan, just because this is something that's causing more and more consternation here in Washington. China has become more bellicose toward the island, cutting off communication curbing travel, intensifying efforts to lure away Taiwan's few remaining diplomatic partners. They're pressuring airlines, retailers, and other multinationals to reverse policies that treat Taiwan as an independent country. More worrisome, Chinese forces have also stepped up naval and air exercises near the island. This spring, 25 Chinese planes entered Taiwanese airspace in a pretty remarkable provocation. Victor, how worried should we be about Beijing trying to make a play for Taipei.
1: Based on what we've seen thus far from China with regard to Hong Kong, uh, one cannot help but be concerned that this might be something that uh, that China under Xi Jinping is thinking about. Um, for that reason, I think uh, we've seen the United States working to internationalize the Taiwan problem Uh, raising it with uh, all of its allies and partners in Europe and in Asia. It was actually surprising to me. There was actually a line in the May 21 U.S.-South Korea summit uh, with regard to support for the promotion of democracy in Taiwan. It would be a very difficult military operation to try to take Taiwan or even to try to blockade Taiwan. So if Taiwan were to fall, um, that would have a broader ripple effect with regard to the way other allies and partners in Asia and in Europe view the strength of the United States and the credibility of its word. So there's a lot on the line when it comes to Taiwan. But I think, you know, the Biden administration, I think thus far has a pretty good strategy on this.
0: Mark Milley testified this week during the Armed Services Committee hearings about Afghanistan, acknowledging that that's hurt our credibility. How much has the Afghanistan issue hurt American credibility in the region? Is that going to make North Korea more aggressive or China more aggressive, or are they sort of distinct issues?
1: I got this question a lot from folks in Asia, governments in Asia after um, Afghanistan. And my response to that was they have the, the premise of the question is wrong in the sense that one of the main reasons that the united states got out, is getting out of afghanistan is so that it can pivot to asia so it can focus on on asia rather than be distracted by a 20 year war that has sucked you know so many resources out and so if anything it just it is a symbol of the us commitment to asia the added thing is that you know At a personal level, the president has been very skeptical of the commitment to Afghanistan. Going back to the surge debate in the Obama administration in 2009, he's documented as being very skeptical of it. And and nowhere is there any documentation of any Biden skepticism with regard to the U.S. presence in Korea and in Japan. Trump, it was there was document evidence Trump uh, with regard You just had to, to look how, at Twitter. Very, yeah, yeah. Right? But even before Twitter, we actually found we found an interview that he did in 1990 in Playboy magazine, of all places, where where as a businessman... That foreign policy like, journal of, right? <laughs> of renown. I mean, it was. what's interesting is it was almost verbatim consistent with what he said as president, So, which is that... You know, these allies in Asia, they're free-riding off our security. It's very expensive, right, because everything for him was about money. It's very expensive. Uh, And they're cheating us on trade, right? That was was the mantra in 1990, and it's the same mantra he carried into the presidency, you know,
0: decades later. South Korean President Moon Jae-in continues to seek progress in his policy of reconciliation toward North Korea, or appeasement, depending on your perspective, before he leaves office next May. At his UN General Assembly speech last week, he even proposed a symbolic peace declaration. What direction do you think South Korea will move after Moon is gone?
1: For listeners, you know, South Korea has a single five-year presidency, and this one ends next year and they have elections in march and you know normally when we when we talk about democracies you know they have elections and we really don't think much about it well we can work with that, whatever government comes out on the other end but arguably this is a very consequential election for the united states because there are very different foreign policy views between the two camps in korea um, you know one of them is is softer on china wants to really try to engage with north korea the other one, the, the opposition camp, is focused on trying to rebuild trilateral cooperation between the U.S., Japan, and Korea, you know, work with the Quad, work on supply chains. So it's a very different um, view. And all of these things are important to the United States.
0: Well, Victor, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about this. And, and hopefully North Korea doesn't get to the uh, top of the Washington agenda anytime soon.
1: <laughs> that would be a good thing. Um, otherwise, we'll be on this podcast again.
0: The United Nations Security Council held an emergency closed meeting on Thursday at the request of the United States, Britain, and France to discuss North Korea's recent tests. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un delivered a speech to his country's rubber-stamp parliament in which he expressed willingness to restart the red phone communication line with South Korea while shrugging off U.S. offers for dialogue. Senior American officials say they'll sit down for talks with North Korea anywhere and anytime, but they also say President Biden will keep sanctions in place until the North takes concrete steps toward denuclearization. Please, Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Renita Jablonski, and Michael Duffy. Our sound engineer is Dar Hirsch. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can find the link to Victor Cha's op-ed in our show notes. And if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to The Washington Post to make our work possible. You can get a good deal at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another edition of Please Go On, because there's always more to say.